Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello. You've made the interesting choice to listen to the following episode of The Roadbook, part of the Never Strays Far family of podcasts that don't always talk just about road racing all the time, so sorry about that. Anyway, here are the latest musings from David Miller in Girona and me, Ned Bolting, in Lewisham, God's own London borough. But first, we go back to Italy. Roglic then back at the Madonna di San Luca in Bologna. He takes the Giro dell'Emilia. Fulsan gives up. Moscon can do nothing. And Roglic makes it two out of two in Italy. He takes Trevali Varazine. And he is on some form. Valverde is now there. And he's on his wheel, but he's left it too late. And Michael Woods takes the win. Brilliant from Egan Bernal, the winner of the Tour de France. Unstoppable on the final climb to Grand Piemonte. Malcolm Oliver knows that finally now he has become a monument man. He takes Lombardia, the race of the falling leaves. Molima, the winner on the banks of Lake Como. And this is our second take of recording the podcast, David. Uh, in, in, the, in the interests of being you know, full disclosure here, I just screwed up our first take by misnaming the year that has just finished. I thought it was 2018, but it's not. 2019 has just come to an end, basically, with Lombardy and with Paris Tour the following day. That's it. But that's, you know what, that's exactly what it's like. And that, that essentially sums up uh, what Lombardia represents. Although, yes, there's Paris Tour the next day and then there's the race in China and some other little things going on. It's like the, the few days after New Year's Eve, January the 1st, where everyone keeps getting the, the new year wrong. It already <laughs> exactly. feels like it's next year. And yet exactly, exactly, exactly. That's so right. And you start to refer to um, the Tour de France this year. You instinctively start to talk about last year's Tour de France, don't you? Um, oh, instinctively. Yeah. So listen, listen, this podcast, we are going to focus big time on um, what's just happened in Paris just about an hour or so ago at the Palais des Congrès, which I'm sure you've attended on many occasions and I have uh, on many occasions as well when they reveal the route of the tour. And there's plenty to to concentrate on there and to look forward to as well. It's really interesting, I think. Um, but before that, before we get to that point, David, um, that, that, that's, you know, because we have given them a lot of attention this year. The Italian races, they came to a close, didn't they? We talked about most of them, but they came to a big shuddering close with a very, very fine win uh, by Malcolm Bollema. Um, did you get did you get to see much of it or not? Sadly not. I was traveling what felt like all weekend because I was away. Uh, I had a trip to do. So I missed everything. I even missed the uh, the sub two hour marathon. Um, I was watching. Oh, yeah, of course. On my on my phone as I was traveling. It was actually it was a bit of a sporty weekend. There was so much going on. But but yeah, as you said, Malcolm Bollamer, as you christened him a while ago, that tends to have stuck, which <laughs> out of respect for, for a monument winner, Malcolm Bollamer, uh, <laughs> from, from what I saw, was an absolutely stellar arrived because I just caught on because again as I said my traveling I came back online coming off a flight and then was looking and then I was seeing all these attacks from Roglic from from Valverde you had all the usual suspects up there but I'd come on just at a point where I'd missed a bit of news that Molomo was ahead yeah so it was really so it was amazing to to see these the all these these absolute stars of 
cycling, the, uh, the current ones, and obviously Valverde, who's been around for like 250 years, uh, attacking the hell out, of it, uh, hell out of it. And actually in front, a minute ahead, was Balka Molima. So you know what? Yeah. If you're going to do it, do it that way. And that is the Molima way now, isn't it? I mean, if you sort of rewind a few years ago, he was one of those riders who, you know, perhaps hung on to his GC ambitions um, for a little bit longer than perhaps, you know, w was, with hindsight, he should have done. And so he's, again, he's kind of reinvented himself, as you like, as a one-day racer, but as a, as, a, as a breakaway rider in stage races. And we've seen that on the Tour de France and, um, and at the Vuelta. And it was great to see him. Oh, this is, this is his biggest win, I mean, but he, and, and his best to date. And David, he does that thing that I think people consistently, or the opposition on this occasion, underestimated in him again. He does that thing that you once said to me, about Dan Martin, you said the thing about Dan is Dan knows how to go really deep. He knows how to suffer and he kind of brings it on himself. And I, I often think that Mollema's a bit like that. I mean, it's just, there's no... So, you know, when Gilbert wins great races like this, there is so much tactical play and ebb and flow and holding res bits of energy back and reserving things because he understands and he plays with the opposition. With Mollema, it's just kind of balls out, isn't it? And, and, and that's how he does it. Yeah, very much so. I mean, that's yeah, and Dan Martin's similar. They're, they're, they're tactically astute, but they know they've 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 only got one bullet to fire, and yeah. and when they go, it's full commitment. And it's as you said, it was Philip Gilbert and many of the the let's say consistent regular monument winners. They're they're very savvy, and you always get the impression that they're 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 playing off the riders like Mollimer and Dan Martin anticipating their move and then getting their win in a, a in a much more wily way whereas Mollimer and there are a few other riders like him when they go you know they're all in and Mollimer it's not only the fact that he is he looks like it his style on the bike is unique let's say but yeah. highly effective and and he t and the way he raced on Sunday it's I mean it's rare for anybody to win uh, one of those hilly classics because that's what Lombardy is in that fashion because it's, I don't think anybody can, can truly uh, understand how hard those races are. Not only the way it's raced and the field and the length, but the actual terrain. It's, mm. it's, it may as well, most people consider them to be mountains, to be honest with you, if you're riding them. The Age Bastogne Liège and, and Lombardia. And so to do what he did, and with all those attacking riders behind him, it's, I think, and also I think he's the type of rider that the whole peloton will be pleased for. He's yeah. such a nice guy, and he's Isn't one of those yeah. kind yeah. of uh, almost, almost never quite, and these things happen. So, for that to happen, I think it's uh, well deserved, and and it will be universal, uh, just respect and 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 happiness for him. Here, 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 David. Um, listen, I, I was going to just ask you about because I am uh, obviously with the the roadbook. As soon as Guangxi is done, we print the roadbook, um, and I am busily uh, well not me directly, but our team are busily getting in all the votes from the jury um, who contain the likes of Marianne, uh, uh, sorry, Marion Rousse-Galapin um, and uh, Orla Shenwey has been invited this year. Rolf Sorensen has joined us. You're part of it. Ryder Hejdal is. Uh, Phil Liggett is. Christian Prudhomme. So a whole bunch of... Uh, Sean Kelly has voted as well. So prestigious, prestigious jury. And we're just pooling the, um, their uh, various different votes. So I can't tell you, even though I know, who has won uh, each of the six categories, David. But we can probably reveal who you voted for, and it'd be interesting maybe to get uh, your justification for that. So if I go through the categories, there are... Let's start with the combativity awards for both uh, male and female riders. Uh, with the, in the female category, 
the uh, and I, I was responsible for the nominations. I have to say, but although all of you guys w could have uh, you know voted for someone else who I hadn't thought of, but um, Soraya Paladin, Anna van der Breggen, Amanda Spratt, Lizzie Dignan, Christina Magieros, and Annemiek van Fluten were my nominees. And who did you vote for there? I went for Lizzie Dignan as number one because I think uh, on more than just the racing, coming back and and fighting back to fitness uh, from having Orla, her baby girl, her and uh, Phil Dignan's baby girl, uh, I think, and the way she then raced, she didn't race conservatively. She came all, all guns blazing. Uh, and for me, that's she's my com competitive uh, female rider of the year, followed by Amanda Spratt and then Annemiek van Vleuten. Uh, she got a third simply for that incredibly ridiculous world championship ride. Yeah, that's fair enough. Very hard to argue. And Amanda Spratt is just one of those riders who's always combative. In She's every always race. there, isn't she? She's yeah. always there, yeah. yeah. She, do you remember how close it was in the La Course, that great race into Poe, when Marianne Vos just caught her in the line exactly. last, the last six, seven hundred metres? Um, well, she actually won it. She won it last year. That's Amanda Spratt. Yeah. Yeah, was it last year or the yeah. year before? It was yeah. a couple of years ago. Anyway, yeah. um, um, uh, the competitive male rider of the year. Well, there were so many ridiculously uh, good uh, candidates here, starting with uh, with, with Mathieu van der Poel, Wout van Aert. Um, I chucked Miguel Angel Lopez in <coughs> into the mix simply because he does attack a lot and he punched someone at the Giro. So, you know, he's got to be in there. Uh, Mads Pedersen for that phenomenal ride. Thomas de Ghent, Philippe Gilbert and Julian Alaphilippe. And who did you go for? I went for, for the second year running, Julian Alaphilippe, number one. I did uh, Mads, sorry, Thomas de Ghent, number two, simply because he is just an absolute maniac and he's always attacking. And then Miguel Angel Lopez, third for, again, yeah, just the way he races. And I think that was exemplified in particular at the Volta Espana, where he was the most attacking rider, much mostly in futility, but it was a pretty amazing ride. Here, here. Um, you don't need to justify your Julian Alaphilippe selection, I don't think, to anybody. Um, young female rider of the year. Again, some really good candidates here. The Italian Chiara Consoni, Lisa Klein um, has made her mark. Elisa Balsamo, also Demi Folling, um, uh, Lorena Vibers, and Chloe Digert Owen, who of course won the uh, elite women's individual time trial in Harrogate in such style. Um, who did you pick there? I went for Lorena Vibes because the way she's just, I mean, she's a sprinter, but the way she's been racing this year, I think, has been a, an amazing display, which we don't see happen so often in women's cycling, especially a young rider just coming in and dominating the sprinting scene. So that was amazing. Uh, Chloe Digart, number sec second, because just the, the, the ride she did at the Time Trial World Championships was such a standout performance and the way she's come through the ranks in Colorado, what she was doing. So she's, uh, she's definitely up there. And Demi Vollering as third because, well, I think it's, she's just a, a name I keep seeing and I think she's, she's got a great future ahead of her. Very good. Uh, with the men, we went for the following nominations. Uh, the young men, this is. Miguel Angel Lopez, Sergio Iguita, Egan Bernal, ridiculously won the Tour de France, young writer. Um, Mads Pedersen, Remco Evenepoel and Tade Pogacar. What a list that is, by the way. Ah, it's, I mean, that could just be the men's rider of the year list, actually. It's, uh, that's how, how good this current crop are. But I had to make a choice, and I went for Tadej Pogacar as the first because I, 
I don't think, even with the competition of Rem- Remco, Evan Paul, and Egan Bernal, I feel Tadej Pogacar just, he's just come <coughs> from nowhere to a certain degree, although he hasn't because he's been there. But the way he raced in the Vuelta was just interstellar. Uh, Remco, Evan Paul, put number second because, again, uh, I've never seen anything like him before, what he's been doing. A, t- a very different performance to Pogacar, um, but still uh, madness. And then, talking of madness, Mads Pedersen, uh, third for his world championship ride which I think caught us all off guard and was uh, a wonderful thing to behold not only for him individually but for, for Denmark as a whole so quite a lot you say quite a lot of crossover between the young male riders and the male rider of the year um, so they include Primoz Roglic in the nominations Philippe Gilbert is there again Sam Bennett I chucked, it, chucked his name in because I think he has been the dominant sprinter just about in a very competitive field uh, Mathieu van der Poel just simply because uh, Julian Alaphilippe and have I mentioned him already? Egan Bernal and those are the those are the names there. Yes, I went. Uh, this is uh, quite pleased. I think this is this is a great indicator for the way the peloton is. Uh, I chosen most combative rider of the year, Julian Alaphilippe. He's also got men's rider of the year because I think yep. the way he races, world number one. Let's not forget till August, till September. So it's not just he's attacking for nothing; he's attacking and getting results, and that's the way bike racing should be. Here's not him number one, Matteo Van der Poel number two, just because of this breath of fresh air he brings to professional cycling and the way he raced. I mean, it's his, his scorecard's ridiculous. Uh, and then Primoz Roglic for third, who's just uh, who's really I think uh, made a, a step function kind of increase this year. He's just proven that he now deserves the status of being one of the best uh, Grand Tour races in the world and, and a legit favourite for next year's Tour de France. Yes, and he's going to win that, as we said the other day, didn't we? Because I've backed well, him, so I've nothing could possibly go wrong. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> uh, nothing could go wrong. <laughs> um, female Rider of the Year, the nominations were Chloe Digatoen again, um, Kirsten Vilt, the uh, sprinter, Marta Bastianelli, Lorene Vibers, um, who at the age of 20 makes it into the Female Rider of the Year. Well, she, she won the World Tour standings, for heaven's sake, so of course she's there. And then two very familiar names, Mariana Vos and Annemiek van Fluten. Well, I went for number one, and I might be a bit biased in this one. Because, I mean, all of these decisions are biased. They're a little bit subjective, although it's hard, as much as we try to be objective. Marianne Voss, number one, because I think that the way she's raced this year, a couple of years ago, we thought it was almost all over for her, that perhaps she just... Uh, uh, done this wonderful younger career in her 20s and then that would be the end of her and she'd burnt herself out and then she's come back this year all guns blazing and just proven that she is number one uh number two Annemiek van Vleuten a great ride at the worlds and just the consistency the way we're seeing her just uh, come up and and cement her status within the women's peloton and then I put Chloe Digart again because I I just think the way she was racing towards the end of the season uh, I have a feeling she's going to be sticking around for a while yeah, it looks that way. She's just 22 years of age as well. Okay, excellent. Okay, so those, those I just stress, those are your choices, not the final decisions of the entire jury. Uh, you'll have to buy the roadbook, I guess, to find out. No, we'll, we'll be announcing them uh, in a short while when they cease to be embargoed. Moving on then, David, let's have a bit of music and then let's talk France. Um, okay. I sent you a little link to a graphic, David, of the route all laid out side by side, every single stage. Have you had a time to glance at it yet? I know you haven't had to, much time to absorb what the route looks like, but have you had a look at that at least? I have had a look at that and it looks like an absolute, well, I think you said the message looks like the Volta. It does look like the Volta Espana. There seems to be at a brief glance, if you were to line all the 21 stages along a line and, and just condense it, it looks like it's relentlessly up and down. 
Uh, I haven't looked closely into it. I'm just looking at the map now because I think much like everybody else, I haven't had much time yet to look at this. And it's yeah. it's a route that I would say is unprecedented. Well, I mean, first things first, what really stands out when you look at it is half of France is missing. So um, it's been a couple of years now that we won't have been to Brittany, for example, um, not since 2018 and, and the, the Mur de Bretagne. Uh, Normandy is entirely absent as well as Picardy. So it doesn't really go north of a line, apart from Paris, obviously. But if you draw a line from La Planche des Belfi um, down to the mouth of the Gironde across France, it doesn't stray north of that. So that's really unusual, isn't it? It's really unusual. And for, for people that don't know the geography so well of France, that's literally if you were to have a map, the hexagon of France, and just draw a line through the middle, the whole race takes place underneath that. It's yeah. amazing. It's essentially the whole of the south of France is where the t- mid to south France is where the Tour de France will be next year. And I've never seen anything like it. And on purely personal terms, I think this is going to make our life a bit easier regards transfers, at least. Yeah, of course, it's all, all about nice. us and our transfer. Yeah, no, it's, it's it kind of goes, so it goes from bottom right across to um, uh, bottom left, and then it goes up again. Anyway, look, we'll go into it in a bit more detail. It starts in Nice, and it hangs around in Nice. So stage one is Nice to Nice, and stage two is Nice to Nice. There's no prologue, but straight away, David, on stage two, um, you're climbing, and it's not inconsiderable. I mean, there will be some sort of GC shake-up almost straight away. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm just looking at these things now. It's it's amazing. It's, it's straight into it, and there. It's this is something that I don't think it's something that's becoming a little bit more on trend. Let's say at the Vuelta, but the Tour de France to go immediately into a mountain stage on the second day, and uh, especially at that time of year down Nice, it's going to be El Scorchio. Yeah. That's going to be an incredibly demanding stage, and uh, immediately it, we've got a GC race in our hands from stage two, and stage four finishes. I mean, this is, I, I, you know, this would be my 18th tour. can't remember anything like this. Stage four, uh, four finishes on a summit in the Alps. I mean, that's yeah, just bizarre. So, so that's, that's a, but that's a climb I don't know, and I don't think it's ever been raced on the Tour de France before. The Ossier Merlet climb, 1850 in altitude. Um, but it's, it's, it's not inconsiderable. I mean, it's a major day in the Alps. Yeah, I mean, I, sister, sister on the day before. So already know niece to sister on. Sister on is a gateway to the Alps in many ways. So we're straight in. Normally, we're we're waiting for the second week uh, or the third week for the Alps or the Pyrenees. And this year, stage four, we're already in there. So if we're looking at stage one, flat stage, stage two, mountain stage, GCs playing out, stage three, flat stage, stage four, as you say, summit finish uh, in the Alps. And it's like, it's nuts. Yeah. Stage six is the first of two summit finishes in the Massif Central. They are separated by seven days of racing. So there was one on stage six and one on stage 13 that will come to that. Um, they're also separated geographically. And the Massif Central is such a huge region um, that we're right at the south of it. We skirt it as we head towards the Pyrenees. And on stage six, there's a summit finish up the Mont. And I don't know how you pronounce this, so I'll do my best. Aigual is the best I can do at the moment. But there we go, the second summit finish on stage six. And we know what those um, Massif Central days can do to the race. Uh, normally, the Massif Central are, are the stages where which put the most fear in the peloton because it hasn't got that defined finish where the pellet, where there's so many teams with a vested interest to control it. The moment you go into the Massif Central, and, and the Massif Central is renowned for just being up and down all day, and not just little hills. We're talking can be five, six, eight k climbs, and there's not a generally not a meter of flat, heavy roads, and if the peloton sides the race from the off, you end up having sometimes uncontrollable groups of twenty, fifteen to twenty five riders going off the front, and we've seen time and time again GC being played on stages like that so it's not as if it's a a, a relaxed transition stage that once again will be a GC day 
Yeah. Then we've got a couple of days. We eventually get to the. Um, we drop out of, of the Massif Central, and there are a couple of days in the Pyrenees, two that don't. Neither of which feature a summit finish. Which is really, yeah. really unusual. Um, we go back, however, to Larin, where Primoz Roglic won the stage on the descent in 2018, the day before the individual time trial. I think it was stage 19, wasn't it? Um, yeah. that, that, so that's familiar from recent years, but no summit finish in the Pyrenees. And then there's a rest day, and we transfer all the way up to the mouth of the Gironde River to the west of France, and there are a couple of opportunities there back-to-back for sprinters. Um, stage 12 is the so only... Actually, just, uh, just so, to interrupt sorry, David, there, yeah. Ned, yeah, just on the, after that rest day, so that's stage 10 and 11, that is yeah. the first time by that point that there are two flat stages back-to-back. Yeah. So so from stage one to nine, they're almost alternating flat mountain, flat hilly, flat hilly, flat mountain, mountain rest day. So, I mean, this is this is something that we haven't seen before. Then you Jean-Marie the LeBlanc. Day. Jean-Marie LeBlanc would be staring in total disbelief at this route for me. <laughs> oh, he, he totally would be. But I remember Jean-Francois Pecheur, who at the time was uh, the 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 basically made the race he was the, the director of the race let's say yeah. um and who that role is now filled by Thierry Gouverneau yeah. and so I remember because I, I know Jean-Francois Pecheur quite well and he said his dream had always been to have a whole Tour de France without a summit finish yeah uh, because he thought that would make the racing much more animated and yeah. I think we're starting to I think with Christian Prudhomme's direction at a, a kind of a pure management level and with Thierry Gouverneau has almost been given, it's like the ghost of Jean-François Pecheur is coming through in <laughs> making this route as absolutely uh, erratic as possible and complicated to race as they can. And so far, we're on stage 11 now, the second flat day in a row after the rest day, and up to now, everything's been a madness. Yeah, it feels like a load of one-day races tacked together, which is um, mouth-watering if that's how it's going to be raced. Um, then on, on stage 12, uh, the 9th of July, don't forget the race starts a week early this year, uh, next year as well because of the Olympic Games, which is another factor. Um, but uh, stage 12 is the only stage over 200 kilometres, and that's good. I mean, y- they could have been uh, perhaps even braver. A lot of them are pretty close to 200 kilometres in length, but that's interesting. I mean, that's the only one that is over 200 kilometres. And then on stage uh, yeah, 13... So again, so I'm just yeah. going to interrupt there briefly, Ned, because it's in the Corrèze which is, again, it's, a, it's an incredibly hilly region. Oh, is so that a nasty one, is it? it? That's a nasty I'm, As an amateur in 1995, I won the Tour de la Croise, and it was an absolute bastard of a race. And so it's, it's much, it's sort of on the cusp, it's on the edge of this. It could essentially be classified Massif Central as well. So that's not going to be, a, it's going to be a very hard uh, 218 kilometres. And the final day, uh, the next day finishes on the top of Puy-Marie, which is the defining climb of the of that part of France, of the Massif Central, the northern sector. And it's pretty close to um, the home turf of a certain Julien Alaphilippe. And these things are not coincidental. We went to Romain Bardet's hometown last year. Uh, we are skirting Alaphilippe territory here. And there, that's, that's happened for a reason. He's earned his right uh, for the race to come past his front door. And also, let's not forget that up to this point, we're now on a... What is it? We're at stage uh, 13 and there hasn't been a time trial yet. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to wait till stage 20 for the only yeah. time trial. So that's really unusual as well. So then, then, um, that, well, then pretty soon we're in the, uh, the Jura and the Alps again. Um, there's a summit finish on stage 15 to Grand Colombier, which is uh, very long. It's not particularly, from my memory though, David, the Colombier is long but relatively shallow, uh, you know, so it's a grind, isn't yeah. it? 
yeah very much so it's a what we might call a power climb <laughs> yeah it's a, yeah yeah it's not it's not uh reputed to being kind of a hyper difficult complicated but it all the same depends how the race goes into it but yeah it's not it's not a scary climb although it can make differences yeah and then the the remaining two uh, sorry the remaining summit finish before la planche des belles filles is um completely unknown to the tour de france it's in meribel it's called the col de la loz um, and the reason it's unknown is because the road itself is only three months old. Um, it's a completely new road. And by all accounts, I mean, no one knows it. No one would have done any reconnaissance on it yet. By all accounts, the final three, four kilometers are ludicrously, not just steep, but they, they are a constant change in the gradient. So it's like a kind of, you know, set to shuffle, basically. So very, very hard race to to know. And certainly one, you know, almost the first one that the well-funded and well-organized teams will go to I think, to do their reconnaissance because that will be a big unknown for them, I think. Yeah, very much. And by the sounds of it, it's, uh, it's one of those classic sort of mountain paths that's been just recently tarmacked because they're saying in the final seven kilometres there's, there's numerous passages at 20%. So it's almost yeah. like it just goes straight up something. So yeah, as you say, that I think we'll, we can count on everybody. No one's going to be surprised by it. If, if they are, then uh, they've made a terrible mistake because you're going to have to go and recon that and get to know it. And that's going to be one of those climbs where the race will be defined. Um, and then, then we will come down to stage 20, La Planche des Belles Filles and the individual time trial. It's not just from the bottom, so it's, it's longer than just the, the, the whatever it is, the six kilometres of La Planche des Belles Filles. It's 36k in length, so there's a, a 30 kilometre preamble to get to the foot of the climb. And I really like individual time, you know what my opinion sometimes of time trialing is like, but I like individual time trials that have that structure, so that for the riders who will lose a bit of time on the climb but are very strong on the flat, um, there is an opportunity, you know, a 30 kilometer opportunity for them to take time that they then might lose a little bit on the, you know, on the, on the sting at the end of the tail. So it's got a dynamic and a narrative within it that, that sometimes time trialing lacks. And I, and I like the sound of it in every regard. I think as well, Ned, we need to do our own time trial up there again. No, I don't. <laughs> I, really <laughs> do, I really don't. Those I really don't. We've discussed this, David. It's simply not happening. You know, for those listeners that don't aren't aware of this, this year was uh, Ned Bolton's fiftieth birthday, and as a birthday yeah. present, we organised a, a time trial up La Planche de Belfi because the Tour de France went up this year. Only we did it on foot, and yeah. we handicapped it on age. And it was <laughs> Ned Bolton set off first. Uh, me eight minutes later, and that little pre, pretty Pete Kenya went yeah. uh, twelve minutes after me, and he won. But, uh, yeah, he was the fastest there were, up there. There were no catches, easy. but but it, yeah. that that was a uh, and you know that's uh, it's interesting that going twice up there. As you say, it's going to make for a very interesting time trial because those first twenty eight kilometers to get to the foot, thirty kilometers, they're they're not easy either. It's rolling, but that mm. would be normally where the climbers on the back foot on that terrain. Uh, and the, but let's face it, most GC contenders these days can time trial. So it's going to be come down to who's recovered best, who's freshest, because I think by this point in the race, we're not going to see a, a time trial specialist in the GC race. It's going to be all of those GC contenders, the Roglic, Chris Froome, let's say Geraint Thomas, Egan Bernal. If those are the riders that are up there fighting for, for the overall, they, they're all very equally matched in the time trial. So it's going to make for a spectacular race. Just a bit. It's really, it's mouthwatering. And obviously we know that Primoz Roglic will win the race. That's been defined. Um, but uh, but he will have some competition, you know. How is how would it be if Pogacar goes to the Tour de France? Ooh, I think it's unlikely, Pogaccia. but that would be that would be great to witness, wouldn't it? Um, oh, that would be amazing. 
Um, and then we go to Paris, um, and the only thing, you know, Paris is Paris, obviously, but the only thing worth saying about Paris is, uh, and this is rather disappointing, is that La Course, having left Paris to make itself slightly more interesting, has returned to Paris to make itself slightly more boring, um, mm. which is uh, a real shame because the last couple of, you know, La Course is a dog's dinner, really, but despite, the, 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 despite ASO not knowing what to do with it, actually the way that the races have attacked it over the last couple of years has been really interesting and I've really enjoyed watching it and commentating on it, but I'm, I'm you know, less so less thrilled at the idea of a criterium uh, in, in Paris again for the, for the women. Now, just to put that in context, from what I understand, just from, from reading Richard Moore's postings today, our colleague, um, uh, I think there is, there is a move afoot and maybe an announcement imminent that ASO actually are on the brink, on the cusp of getting an independent uh, women's stage race up and running. So that might have something to do with the fact that they have kind of like drawn their horns in a little bit with regard to La Course this year. So I hope that's the case. But, um, but there we go. That's Paris. So um, that's it. That's the Tour de France. Have it we got any like other just, business? Uh, yeah, go on. No, but I'm just going to wrap up that as well. It does seem, and I, I, I can't imagine because these things are so complicated to, to put together, but this is a perfect course for Julien Alaphilippe, for Thibaut Pinot, uh, for the French, for those two French riders in particular. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it's going to make for such an anarchic race. I, I mean, this year we saw, and now looking looking back at 2019's edition, uh, we thought that was a, a an interesting course. It's almost like they they've taken that and decided, well, let's just amp it up. Let's turn it to eleven uh, yeah. and make it the most interesting Tour de France that's ever been raced. Uh, it's gonna. It's. it's I, I. I mean, it's. Poor. I don't really have words for it. I've never seen anything like this, and it's going to be fabulous viewing. But David, you're you're absolutely right, aren't you? This is. The, 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 you know, the, the shape that it's taken, the form that it's taken has been... I mean, these, so it's one thing to say, these races don't... You know, they haven't been planning it since July. A lot of this will have been... The bricks would have been put in place a long way out, years ahead, you know, Nice, for example. Um, but its final shape, I think, has been very much dictated by what happened on the Tour de France last year with Pinot, as you say, and Alaphilippe. Because, I don't know, it's, it's quite possible that they've actually taken out a longer individual time trial that was originally planned for. That would be really interesting to know, wouldn't it? Whether or not they've taken a dramatic step um, behind the scenes yeah. to actually uh, get one or one or other of these, these riders over the line for, for France. Yeah, that's the sort of thing that, that could have been done. But at the same time, this route will have been mainly mapped out last year before this year's tour because you have to get buy-in because obviously towns and the majority of towns will, will have to pay for this obviously they'll subsidize certain smaller places or, or regions yep. will do it there's a, there's a lot of logistical and political wrangling to get a tour de france stage and, and then they have to link it all up and make the route uh, and especially in the modern world i going back to jean-francois Pechaud and Jean, jean-marie leblanc who you mentioned uh, jean-francois Pechaud used to tell me story he told me stories about they used to he used to map out the route him and jean-marie leblanc would go on a road trip in October or November, this is like a year and a half before, and sometimes they're already sensing up for two years ahead, a road trip around France for three weeks, 
and sort of mapping out coming up with their route and they'd literally turn up to to the mairie the town hall and knock and knock on the door and trying to find out where the mayor lived or meet the mayor and then they <laughs> end up having lunch dinner and and going around places like that in these smaller places and also the big cities it was all very organized but back in the day it used to end up just being on long lunches and dinners mapping out the route going around france now Amazing. those days are gone this is this is uh, it's a, it's a huge operation and i think as you said serendipity has allowed uh, the stars have aligned in many ways that this route that was already mapped out before the success of Alaphilippe this year in Thibaut Pinot is actually perfect for them. And and one thing has been cleared up by that. And, you know, we we were wondering, uh, you know, on air and in various different events we've done, what Alaphilippe's next move would be in terms of how he sees his his career progressing. And that slight doubt about whether or not he would want to commit to being a GC racer again at the Tour de France. Well, that's cleared up his... That's, that's, there's no more muddied thinking, I don't think, for him. It's very clear, isn't it, that he's got to try and get himself on the podium here. Or try. I agree. You know, I, yeah. I, I, I agree completely. I think this is... Uh, this is uh, <laughs> I say once in a lifetime. It's obviously second in a lifetime chance because this year went pretty well. But, uh, yeah, this is... It does essentially... Uh, he's got no excuses. It would be an absolute folly for him not to turn up to Tour de France next year with intentions, with uh, big ambitions, because this is uh, not to be sniffed at, as they say. Brilliant. All right. Very nice to speak to you, David. Um, I have got so many other business. Um, I know that you, in particular, will be um, tuning into the, the back end of this podcast with bated breath, because um, after a little bit of music, I'm going to uh, play you some uh, a recording I made back in Harrogate with uh, a doyen of the podcasting world, Lionel Burney, where we indulged our mutual admiration for the ladies and gentlemen of the Oki, the darters of the world. Stay put. So um, we're in the we're in the Harrogate Arms, which you very quickly ascertained, Lionel, and I thought it was a brilliant bit of research actually, you know, early doors during the World Championships had a darts board. <laughs> Not just one dartboard, Ned, two dartboards. So it's quite a pro setup there. You can, you can warm up on one, do- one board and then move across to the match board for our, <laughs> our big showdown. Which we've, Are you going to tell your listeners how you well, got on in our game? Well, I, well, yeah, I will actually, because it didn't end in total ignominy. I, um, I went to pieces. I mean, I'm a, I am a hopeless darts player. Um, but I am. I can at least hit the board. However, at the beginning, I couldn't. <laughs> so it was two teams, wasn't it? You were paired. Um, you were paired with Renard Scotte, who is um, Mr. Cycling in, in Sporza in Belgium, the esteemed cycling commentator, mm-hmm. watched on by Jose Cowers, who is um, who is you know used to be in charge of Belgian cycling, didn't he? And you know more than that, he was Greg Lemond's director sportif in the 1989 Tour de France, which Greg Lemond won by eight seconds. <laughs> and um, <laughs> great story about De Cower is that uh, he was um, in the team car behind Lemond on Alpe d'Huez, and just behind um, De Cower's team car was Cyril Guimard, the yeah. Sports director, director sportif of Laurent Fignon, um, Le Mans's great rival in that tour. And Guimard knew from having worked with Le Mans for so long before the tells of when Le Mans was struggling, sort of rocking in the saddle, shoulders going yeah. a bit. And he wanted to get up past De Cowers' team car to tell Le Mans 
uh, to tell Finion, sorry, to attack. Um, so De Cower was weaving all across the road and taking the corners on Alpduez as wide as he possibly could to block to, him. To block him because oh, there were no, no radios in those days. So there was no you. way of getting the message up to Finion to attack, attack, attack. So, um, yeah, De Cower possibly helped uh, Le Mans win the Tour de France in, in 89. I mean, he was well, significant. One of his significant sporting achievements, the other one was watching us play darts today. <laughs> uh, it's his birthday, actually, Yose. So, so, yeah, yeah. Do you say Yose or Jose? Well, I never quite know with him, so I hedge my bets a bit. But anyway, um, that's neither here nor there because it, it's, this is about darts, really, isn't it, in the mm, podcast okay. that never strays far from cycling. This is about this is about darts, and um, you and I um, share an enthusiasm. I'd hesitate to call it a passion, but it's a genuine enthusiasm for darts, don't we? You're half no, you're not. You're respectable. I was going to say you're half decent, but you're not. You're not even. I mean, actually, no. in the grand scheme of things, you're not even an eighth decent, no. really. Um, but I'm off the scale, so you can throw a dart. I can't, but we both like watching it, don't we? Uh, yeah, I love darts. Um, I've got a dartboard in my office at home. I play when I should be working. You know, it's a great sort of therapeutic, therapeutic uh, pursuit when, when I'm trying to write or when you know something else should be happening. I can throw a few darts. Um, it's a bit like my cycling. I can kind. Of, I look okay. I can you do actually. I can, you've got poise and a bit of. You've got a proper action. Yeah, I'm, I'm a, a fraud really. I copy the action of the best players on the TV, but the, the dart doesn't go in the, in the, the segments that I require. A bit like cycling. I look okay on a bike. I would say, um, but I'm slow and, and not very good at cycling. But if you just sort of if you saw a little clip of me on a bike you'd go well yeah he he can he can cycle and looks okay i kind of know the theory behind what looks okay and what you should look like but i have no kind of uh, you know power beyond the poise and it's the same with darts really i can i can throw the dart at the board in a you know i've got the stance right down to a t but then when you cut if the camera were then to cut to the board and look at where they go, that's where it all falls down, really. A, a great metaphor for almost every aspect of my life. <laughs> but I, I, um, I'm not making it up. I do genuinely love darts. Mm. Um, and I, I ascertained quite early on that, on the face of it, there are no sports more separated than darts and cycling, right? Physiologically, um, you know, one one is played out over what is an hockey again? It's seven foot nine and a quarter inches or something like that. Uh, yeah, yes, something like seven that. foot nine and a quarter and yeah. a quarter inches. Yeah. And another one is played out over two hundred eighty-five kilometers. Yeah, right. Um, and and that's not the only difference. <laughs> there are, there are many other. So if you lined up sporting endeavour, cycling would be at one end, darts would be firmly at the other end of the spectrum. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, and it, it, it took me a while when I was writing a book about darts to actually establish this in my mind. They are almost the only sports that British youth or British middle age or British people have all done. We have all ridden a bike. And we've all thrown a dart. And we've all thrown a dart. Yeah. How many times have you javelined? Uh, well, at school I had to go at a javelin, yeah. But Hockeyed? I played hockey, yeah. Synchronised swum? No. Equestrian? No. Canoeing? Yes. <laughs> what are we doing here? We can carry on. But, 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 but you, you take my point. They're incredibly democratic things, like, and they are somehow linked to our everyday lives, both of them. Do you see what I'm getting at? I, 
I do actually. I, I think there's something about the, the we're in a pub, obviously. There's something about these pub sports and and British culture that really appeals to me. Everyone plays a game of pool as well. That's another that's another one. Um, back in the day, you know, there'd be a shove halfpenny table in a pub, you know, and you 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 feel compelled to have a go. And I think that's the thing with darts. When you see a dartboard in a pub no matter how terrible you are, you feel kind of compelled to go and ask at the bar, oh, have you got the set of darts? And then they hand them over and there's like, you know, one that's got a sort of plastic stem on it and one that's not doesn't tighten up properly and all the flights are different and they're different weights and you don't, you, you kind of, none of that really matters. Yeah. And I think there's something about sort of the, your first steps in cycling you know just getting on any any bike and just having a go when you're when you're a kid that is a kind of universally shared experience i think so i i get where you're coming from there um yeah. but i mean drinking heavily and darts go together drinking heavily and cycling do not go together listeners let's just be careful and clear about that that that's that, that's very true i have i've dreamt of and i'm not um, I'm not taking the mick here. I have literally... I, I've, I've, I've designed a darts cycling duathlon, right? Um, in quite intimate detail, actually. And I tried to, I tried to convince... Do you remember the, the long-lost and lamented Revolution series, which sadly is no longer with us? James Pope, who, who used to run that from the mm-hmm. Face Partnership, mm-hmm. he, um, he said, I'm all for innovation, Ned. Have you got any new ideas? And I said, darts, cycling, duathlon. And it works like this. It works like this. It's a relay. Because I think, listen, I think relays basically are underused and underutilised in cycling full stop. I think it's a whole untapped mine of, of great racing that we could have. But um, So the, the darts one works like this. You have a team of darters. Mm-hmm. Chris Mason would be my first name on the team sheet. So a lot of podcast listeners won't know who Chris Mason is, but you're nodding sagely because yep. you know about you know about Chris Mason. His prison sentence was short. But he's a good man. He's an amazing guy, and um, and and uh, he's recently embraced cycling. Anyway, so you have a team of darters, right? Let's say four, four darters and four proper cyclists, right? I'm talking about Ed Clancy, that sort of guy, right? Four cyclists, and um, one after the other. So rider, rider one goes on each team. They have to do a lap of the velodrome, okay, mm-hmm. or maybe two. They have to get off, and they have to rush to the track centre, mm-hmm. and they have to throw. I think it would be um, I think it would be ridiculous to ask them to throw a bullseye or a treble 20 because that might take forever but they just have to throw a 20 alright okay okay to release the next rider okay uh, okay and yeah. off they go so you get the yeah. you get the cyclists smashing and taking chunks of time on the darters presumably mm-hmm. but mate when their heart rate is going 10 to the dozen and they cut, I reckon they'd miss the board quite frankly and it'd be really interesting to see how the darters performed under those circumstances because hitting a 20 for a darter I'm not exaggerating they can literally do it with their eyes shut my well in my office at home I have my turbo trainer set up with my bike on it in front of the dartboard and I have played darts whilst riding on the turbo and my idea for the duathlon is that you your your score uh, there's some kind of percentage sliding scale of score depending on your heart rate so nice, nice. the more your heart rate goes up, the more the, the score is multiplied. So if oh, you're nice. if you're riding at 165 beats a minute, yeah, yeah we're sort of pretty up there, but not at the, not at your maximum. 
and then you hit a treble 20, you know, there's, there's some coefficient. It's not a great spectator sport because it's going to be very complicated but it, and it will tax the boffins, but there'll be a whole... It'll be like the Cycling Weekly gear, um, you know, the gear table when yes. you see yes. how many inches your, your 5311 is. Um, that will have to be distributed and for the spectators. It will be complicated, but the idea is... It'll take a few years to bed in as well, that coefficient, until you've got it absolutely finely calibrated. Ned, you know TV people, we can get a deal for this. We, we could get this on Dave, I'm sure. Turbo <laughs> training and darts. Topless. In... <laughs> Might have to be topless. But, but, um, no one wanted to see that. The only, the only thing that slightly worries me about this, this great idea, in fact my idea as well, but yours especially, is um, I, I, I don't want to death on the track. I don't want to death, and... Um, yeah. and, and there may be a death. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> live. The, the, um, you're a, the, the physique of the top darts players, I mean, it requires equivalent work to the physique of the top cyclists, but yeah. just in the opposite direction, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. I mean, there, there have, from time to time, there have been um, athletes who have graced the hockey. You know, one thinks of the, the Cristiano Ronaldo of darts uh, of a decade ago, um, um, Jelle Klaassen, who won the BDO World Championship, who was famously teetotal and young and incredibly good-looking. Um, drinks a bit now, <laughs> I have to say. But um, it's very hard, actually, to... Um... Here's another thing that amazed me about darts when I started working in it, Lionel, is... Um, I remember one of my first Grand Slam of darts in the Wolverhampton Civic that I covered. I was just wandering around backstage one evening and there was a knock on the stage door and I was kind of walking between my presentation position and the interview room and um, I opened this and this chap with a briefcase and, and wearing a suit turned up and he said... I'm here from UK Sport to do the anti-doping. <laughs> Whoa! Wow! They did anti-doping. Well, at they, they get funding from UK Sports. They are officially recognised as a sport, which is entirely appropriate because that's a separate debate. It is a sport. Mm. It is undeniably a sport. But there are certain things. So they, by being in that, they have to submit to anti-doping programmes. But they can untick certain substances, right. and so you know. Alcohol was one, that, in particular, that they oh, untickled. But the real difference um, between doping and cycling and doping in, in, in darts is that uh, the anti-doping <laughs> officers have no trouble collecting a sample. <laughs> no. It's like, how much do you want, mate? Yeah. Is it three litres? So, so a guy comes along with a watering can to take away uh, Adrian Lewis's... <laughs> urine sample for, for, uh, for testing uh, that's really interesting I actually didn't know that because I've always wondered uh, you know uh, sports which rely on a great deal of hand-eye coordination and also um, calmness under pressure would be rife for some kind of you know beta blocker yeah but, or... well beta blocker is actually actually in all seriousness beta blocker is the the the, the dope I mean I don't know how what, I don't think a darts player has ever tested positive for it I don't think I might be wrong but that that would be the one because that's used in what's that Winter Olympics thing the biathlon the, biathlon, the modern is it? Bi- is it whatever that one the shooty runny the, sk- well, the ski shooty thing that's the model for our um, cycling darts to athlon isn't Correct. it because they're they're working very hard and then they have to be very focused to hit their target yeah. Yeah. same thing why why not I mean, and it would be perfect for the Winter Olympics, indoor cycling and, and darts. I, I just don't see why, you know, why it's not happened yet. And yeah. I think you're the man 
to put a lot of pressure on the broadcasters, the governing bodies, get everyone around the, the table. Bodies. Get everyone around the table. The UCI meets the PDC. Yeah. <laughs> Barry Hearn. Barry meets Hearn the and David, David Lepartion have a. They'll, they'll go <laughs> that for, is literally the funniest <laughs> thing I've they'll, they'll go for pie and mash somewhere. <laughs> and Imagine they'll, if they'll Barry Hearn bought in. cycling. Okay. He's, oh, got, he's bought darts, he's bought snooker. I'll have the Tour de France, mate. What would what would be the first thing Barry would do? Well, um, well, uh, walk on girls. Oh, no. the, the podium girls would be back, wouldn't he, they? They'd be completely back. Yeah. They'd be completely back. Yeah, yeah. maybe yeah. this isn't a great idea then. <laughs> no, it would be an absolute pleasure. It wasn't a pleasure playing against you because you kicked, you whooped our collective backsides. Mainly due, I have to say, to the Belgian... Renard. I mean, he's he's, he's he, I mean, we need to come up with a nickname for him, Renard. Um, yeah. What are what are we going to call? Where's he from in Belgium? We need to find that out and then Does come it, up with yeah, the, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the. But he, then he overstepped his mark. He said, he "said You know, Belgians like the best in Dutch. We are the worst." Oh, in a, in, no, yeah, you're not, no, mate. No. You've got Ronnie and Kim Heinrich, and that's it. Yeah. Right? No, no, the Dutch next door. They're, the Dutch. They're the they're the second best. Oh, in actually, Dutch, but, I, I was telling you, I once. <laughs> I I was, I was I was working on the women's tour with Mariana Voss a few years ago as my pundit and we were travelling around together in the same car and you know you know, you know what it's like travelling around on a stage mm-hmm. race just chatting away about stuff and um, she said she said to me she said do you so do you cover other sports and I said yeah darts and she said oh um, I have done some events I don't want to do a Dutch accent it's a bit patronising but anyway she said I've done a lot of events with um, we have a very famous Dutch darts player don't we and I do some television things with him and I, about? I, I, no, no I said Michael van Gerwen wow and she said yeah wow. oh you mean yeah and she said the guy who looks like a big baby yes yes and I went yes <laughs> that's Michael van Gerwen that's Michael van Gerwen the most talented darts player who's ever lived really um and anyway, she said, it's just a, it's a, it's not really a sport. And I gave her my whole spiel that I won't bore you with about it. Yes, it absolutely is. And she went, OK, well, maybe I'm convinced because she's a lovely, open-minded person. So when we finished working together, I thought, I know what I'm going to do. It's a nice little gesture to thank her for the week's work. I'm going to buy her some special Mariana Voss flights. Oh, nice. Right? So you can nice. get them bespoke. So yeah. I did that. It cost me a tenner. It wasn't a big gesture. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, that's a bit ridiculous unless she's got some darts to put them in, right? Mm-hmm. So I bought some quite expensive unicorn darts, right, mm-hmm. to go with them, you know. <laughs> and then I thought, she hasn't got a darts board, has she? So you bought a darts board. <laughs> so I thought, I better get a board. And then I thought, I've got to post this all off to the Netherlands. <laughs> and, 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 like, oh, and by now, I, like, just to buy the kit, I was about 50 quid down, right? And then I had to post it, and the postage cost 70 quid. No. It was a, a flippant... Throw away comments, and it cost me 120 quid. And I can bet that that dartboard is just sitting in the corner of Mariana Voss's house, and has never been used. And well, no, and you spent 250,000 euros on the Mariana Voss Sport Hall, which has got dartboards all lined up in it for her to play in in her hometown. I'm, that's the next step, isn't it? it I is. thought I thought you were going to say that she suddenly revealed that she'd reached the last eight in the women's Dutch Open darts. You know she would. You know that if she did that, she'd be you know she'd be right there. It might be a future career. All right, listen, um, sup up. You're, you've got a pint in the hand, and we've both got things to do. But that was um, that will have alienated almost every of our embryonic podcast, and we are just a, a small little thing compared to your monolithic projects. But yeah, what what few listeners we had, Lionel, we've just thrown them away. Well, they wouldn't have been expecting fifteen minutes of dark chat, would they? So 
Well, I mean, give, give people what they don't know they want. Correct. We've done it with astrophysics, and now we're doing it with darts. that edition of the roadbook the cycling podcast that never strays far from darts incidentally the roadbook itself will be published on november the 1st the 2019 edition you can go to the website theroadbook.co.uk and take advantage of the special offers involving the 2018 edition as well to complete your collection hold up what was that Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 